Welcome to Writing It, a podcast by Ed Adams. The Square, Episode 8, a novel by Ed Adams. Manhattan, Molly's. Evening in New York, James was in the Irish bar. He'd already bought a glass of black beer and was sipping it, waiting for someone to arrive. Prominently on the chair next to him was a Macy's tote, bright red with a white star on it and inside a metal briefcase. Good evening, said a voice. James looked towards a tall figure, slightly tanned and with a clipped American accent. Do you mind if I sit here? I've been shopping for lighting. Someone asked me to get a lampshade. And you are? asked James. I'm Chuck Manners, came the reply. I think we met once before briefly, in the desert. I was preoccupied, and I think you drove away. Mr Manners, answered James, I assume we both know some of the same people. It's Colonel, but you can call me Chuck, smiled Chuck back towards James. It has been an intense couple of days for both of us, I'm sure. Chuck replied, they've asked me to retrieve the case. I think I may assist to defuse it too. Okay, but I think you should know that there is someone following me. They've come across to New York from Egypt. They were in my girlfriend's apartment. Okay, we will need to resolve that, answered Chuck. Do you know who they were or what they want? Not exactly, although they seem to be after some codes. I think I know what that is about, answered Chuck. They are codes to disable the content of the truck that was blown up by the helicopter. So they must know that. Why do they still want the codes, asked James. There were two. Two trucks and two consignments. I think they have lost the other consignment at the moment. If they can find it, they will want to arm it. That was a pretty powerful warhead, said James. Even at three clicks, it was devastating. I agree, said Chuck. So we can be sure they are up to no good. Okay, said James. I'll hand over the case, but I might need your help if they continue to pursue me. You have my word, said Chuck, looking at James in the eye. One casualty from this already. We don't want any more. Look, I'm staying at the W, just off Times Square, room 5111, 51st floor. I'm taking the case there now. I'll open it, and then we can get back together if you like. I'll be flying out tomorrow, back to the UK. I assume you will want to get lost so that whoever has been tracking you can't locate you any longer. Just make sure to give me a way to stay in contact, at least until we both leave New York. James nodded and wrote something down. We should exchange contact details, he said. Chuck nodded, then rose, picked up the Macy's bag and raised his glass of beer. Cheers, he said. Cheers, said James. Leah. Leah had first met James in London when he was sitting in a cafe drinking a latte and there was no other table spare. She'd been in a hurry and had left a bag behind, a genuine accident. James had called after her and then left the cafe to pass the bag back to her. In a moment of impulse, he had invited Leah for supper at any time in the same week. Leah had, to her slight surprise, agreed and they'd met later the same evening and over a short time developed a strong relationship. They made a good couple, and although Leah didn't know fully what James did as a consultant, 
He gave her some surprise vacation breaks as she could sometimes follow him around during assignments. She wasn't at all phased to receive the ticketing for Cannes from James with its clandestine romantic message. Not a word until we meet. The current situation was great and after two years apart a chance to reacquaint. James had contacted her to offer her a visit to Cannes for a water sport break until he could join her there on his way back from Turkey. He had sent her the ticket and hotel information and it was a great surprise. So now Leah was enjoying every minute. Sea spray, bumping, solid power. Can have been a stroke of genius. Now she was in a smart hotel with a private beach and enjoying as much water sports as she could handle. The complimentary hotel upgrade had been a bonus on top. The powerboat lesson had been great and she was really getting the hang of the water skis. In the distance she could see another fast powerboat, but apart from that she seemed to have the immediate bay to herself. The other boat was similarly practising water ski manoeuvres, but didn't seem to have a skier in tow. Leah assumed it was someone out to try the boat's manoeuvrability, although now it was getting closer to the area where she was practising. Then, suddenly, it spun towards their boat and manoeuvred itself in parallel, but with a closing gap. It slowed so that instead of being in line with her boat, it was now in line with her. A blur of something dark, it was a net of the kind used to land a large fish. It had been fired somehow from the other boat and landed just in front of her. She was in it. The safety line to her powerboat had disconnected. She was now in the sea, in her wetsuit, floating on her buoyancy device and in a net. She struggled to get free but could feel the net being pulled. She was being reeled in like some captured exotic fish. The other powerboat was not visible. It was somewhere to the left of the boat that was pulling her in and in and she could only hear noises of engine and shouted instruction from the boat, which was now her capturer. She was hauled up the side of the boat, banging her body and then her legs and shins against the edge of the craft, then flopping with a thud to the deck surface of the boat. Without removing the net, two men had slipped a white plastic loop around her legs and her arms. She felt immense fear. What on earth was this about? She tried to scream, but nothing came out. Then darkness as she was pushed down some steps in the boat into a darkened room. She heard the engine rev and the boat took up a quick speed away from the area, the floor of her temporary cell sloping and bumping with the progress of the boat. Less than an hour later they stopped. The boat was being docked and Leah guessed they were not far from Cannes where she had been staying, but that they had taken her to a different location for whatever purpose. Then she heard footsteps approach and saw one of her captors descend the ship's stairs towards her. Don't worry, he said. If you cooperate and your friend cooperates, then no one will get hurt. We don't want you, but you are a way to get James, and in turn to something he has which belongs to us. Leah was mystified by this, as well as scared. I don't know what you're talking about, she said. And how do you know James? I think you have the wrong people. Neither of us is mixed up in anything, so I don't think holding me will get you anywhere. Just let me go. I can't do that. We need to get to James. And you will help us, continued the captor. He motioned towards a video camera. You will make a small video now and we will use it to attract James. You must say that you are in captivity and that you want to be set free. Ask James to come here and we will arrange for your freedom. It's really that simple. He positioned the camera on a small tripod and switched it on. No, said Leah. I won't ask James to help me. You must just let me go. This is illegal and you will be in a lot of trouble. Leah steered towards her captor, who kept the camera running. To be honest, it doesn't matter what you say, he continued. As long as you show James you are with us, I can then add a message to the video recording. 
Anonymity. After James had returned to Leah's Manhattan apartment and seen the disturbed papers, his thought was of how comprehensively he had been rumbled. His original plan to depart from Cairo and to select a pseudo-random destination had been well and truly intercepted. Not only did he have local US spooks onto him, he also believed that he was being followed by a second team, or ironically that the second team had been watching the Americans who had visited him. Either way, Team 2 had somehow tracked him down and also broken into the apartment and found enough material to be able to track down Leah. Even he had only just figured out that she was in France, but his main concern was that she would now be part of a trade for the information that he held about his recent aborted project. It didn't take a genius to work out that Team 2, and possibly also Team 1, would be looking for the means to get the information from James, and it would be via Leah. He looked around the apartment. He switched on the television. He flicked on a few more lights. There. That would make the place look busy if anyone were to check his whereabouts. He exited via the elevator, but then through a back exit to the building. It brought him to a short lane which led into another busy thoroughfare. At the end of the lane, he could see yellow cabs. He thought about the need to phone Leah. He hadn't wanted to do so from her apartment, and he deliberately not kept a cell phone with him from the time he'd started the live part of the mission. He would head directly to the airport and phone her from the anonymity of the airport. Take the air train. James sat in the airport lounge. He'd been able to use his traveller card to gain access despite a lowly economy ticket. New York JFK was quiet for Friday, as had been the entire drive from Midtown. The route from 42nd Street had been along to the Midtown Tunnel and then out across to Long Island. The long streets were lit with afternoon sun, which glinted from the skyscrapers as he looked down towards Lower Manhattan. Long Island traffic was almost at a standstill, although the cab driver wove a complicated route, dodging the worst of the clogged streets. Instead of going directly to the terminal at JFK, he'd asked the cab to drop him at the Hertz car rental depot. He'd used the air train back to the terminal and the long way around to Terminal 7 by all the intermediate stops. This gave him a chance to see if he was being directly followed. No one in their right mind would use this route, so any coincidence would probably be more than that. It didn't take long to get around to the check-in area. Then through self-check-in, the enhanced security which involved removing shoes and into the area with the streams of water and the mini-escalators rising half-floor height before following the signs to the haven of the lounge. He could tell it was a Friday in the lounge, however. There were plenty of executive types sitting around, but instead of the usual bleeps of mobile phone tunes and the murmur of business conversations, there was much more of a hush. The Bluetooths had been retired for the weekend, much of Europe was already out for a Friday evening, and so the usual source of much of the conversation had already subsided. Time's arrow was working, and the weekend was already underway in the places that many of the people in this particular lounge were travelling to. Sports pages were being read, people were reclining on beach lounges, an improbable feature of this airport lounge. It was time to power down for the next couple of days. Sleek brown t-shirt. James knew he was still on duty. He was expecting to be contacted before he left New York. As the minutes were reducing, he wondered how this would happen. 
He only had the time between now and the walk to gate nine to board his plane. The relaxed businessman nearby was reading a book about Caesar. Maybe he was the contact. James looked at him cautiously. He seemed engrossed in his book, and then a flight was called to Madrid, and he rose and left to be replaced almost immediately by a French mother with two children. James noticed her commandeering the space and spreading her bags and the children's belongings around, then removing a chunky woolen cardigan revealing a sleek brown T-shirt. James looked away before the woman noticed and continued to read his newspaper. One of the children, around ten years old, was by his side and counting a few dollars conspicuously to his right. James glanced up and at the same moment met the woman's gaze. "'The bag is for you,' she said, glancing towards a white carrier bag by the side of the child. It looked like a news agent carrier bag, similar to the one he had been given when he purchased his own newspaper on the way to the lounge. The mother called something to the boy in French, and he jumped up, taking his younger brother by the hand, walking away across to the display of cookies and potato chips. "'Take the bag now,' spoke the woman softly, "'and make your way to gate nine. "'The content is papers, but it includes what you are looking for.' She continued softly, "'Don't try to follow us. "'We're travelling to Paris, but know nothing further of your plans.' They tricked me into making this contact. I want nothing further to do with it, and I'm scared if you don't follow my instructions that something will happen to me or the boys, she added. James nodded, swept up the carrier, and then moved towards the exit from the lounge. He knew he would examine the contents when he was away from the area, but realised he was putting the woman in some danger if he didn't do what was requested. Calling Chuck. From the airport, James called Chuck. Wow, that was quick, exclaimed Chuck. Is everything all right? Not really, answered James. They kidnapped my girlfriend, Leah, and are asking for codes, like we talked about yesterday. Where is she? Yeah, and where am I? I'm at JFK, about to leave New York for London, then Cam France to find her. I don't really know what I'm up against, but I might have to pick up a small toolkit on the way. I thought I'd best let you know, seeing as you followed me across to New York. OK, said Chuck. I'll be thinking about this and how best to deploy. Thanks, Chuck. Quasette. James had not really slept since New York. He had fitful bursts in the economy section of the BA plane, and then while waiting in London. Now he was in Cannes. He knew he should sleep to be sharp for the next day, but a combination of adrenaline and anxiety had kept him awake. The hotel room was in a side street on the fourth floor. He had a small balcony, and he wanted to keep the room unlocked to improve ventilation on what had been a warm night. But he had spooked himself and was worried about intruders. His logic was that anyone serious about finding him would not let a small hotel window deter them, but on the other hand, the glass looked thick, troublesome to break, and there were extra security devices on both the hotel room door and the sliding patio window. So, after interrupted sleep, James had awoken and freshened up for the day. He could feel a dud edge to his head, which he knew was the effect of too little sleep, and he worried that this could reduce his reactions during the day's events. At around this time, a noise from roadworks outside the hotel disturbed him, and he looked down to see a series of road markers and two men drilling the road surface. 
He wondered if this was linked to his presence, but assumed it was coincidence. It was directly outside his hotel and meant a small village of workmen's hut had been erected during the night. His vantage point meant he could see what was involved, and as well as the paraphernalia of the roadworks, there appeared to be a satellite dish and some form of communications station. Maybe he was paranoid now, but this did not look normal to him. He looked through the belongings he had brought with him, a small holdall and a separate tiny rucksack. He weighed up his possessions and moved a few into the rucksack. A t-shirt, a camera, phone, cash and credit cards and a few other small items. The rest he left in the other holdall. He looked behind him as he reversed out of the room. Goodbye at room 425. He left the hotel without checking out. He was still booked for another day, which gave him longer to escape detection. It was only just after nine in the morning and James decided to scope out the area designated for the meeting. His small hotel was near to the old town and the harbour. He could lose himself in this part of town until the time arrived to meet with the dangerous people who had abducted Leah. He knew why and would need to play the whole situation carefully. Eventually, he found a small area of wall by the harbour, away from the bustle of people and with a good view towards a large clock on the hillside overlooking the town. A perfect vantage point in the sunshine, while he waited for the due hour to arrive. He had picked up a newspaper from a table as he left the hotel and now read this quietly. At ten minutes to eleven, he stirred to begin his trial walk to rehearse the meeting with the abductors. He calculated it would take five or six minutes to get back to the Palais de Congress and then he could walk slowly towards the western end of the croisette. It would take him at least twenty minutes to walk along at moderate speed. A warm blue sky and just the trail of aircraft crossing Europe and the tiniest wisps of cloud. He had been told to walk the length of the croisette promenade at eleven o'clock on Thursday morning and that he would then be contacted. The situation seemed strangely ironic as he moved past billboards advertising the latest spy movie, along with pictures of playboys and the silhouettes of shapely women. Cannes seemed geared for pleasure, with its combination of languid cafes, meticulously expensive shops and sunshine, even here in November. It was Wednesday and he had time to make a survey of the area, both anxious to understand what would unfold within the next 24 hours but also inquisitive of the mainly relaxed lifestyle of the local inhabitants. It was clearly the end of the season. Businessmen mixed with sun-tanned locals, the darker tan types who looked as if they either lived in Cannes all year, and the cosmetically enriched tans of the jet-setters with their expensive wraparound sunglasses. James was aware that he may already be under observation, but even as he pivoted and took a slightly erratic path along the promenade, there was no discernible reaction from anyone except an old lady walking a very small dog, which itself had been alarmed at one of his sudden movements. James also recognised that there was a chance he was observed from a car, or even maybe a rooftop, but then maybe the people he was dealing with were just confident enough not to consider it worth the effort. The start of his walk had been near the old town, where there was a harbour, many small boats moored, and some small but presumably expensive seafood restaurants. He knew the area was not the primary one he'd been asked to walk in, and the near distance he could see the large concrete slab of the Palais de Congress, which marked the start of his route. He skirted the harbour, noticing a small and moderately camouflaged McDonald's on his way to the start of the route. Passing the Palais, there were various business folks standing outside chatting in small groups. There was some kind of exposition in progress, and these suited and sombre-looking people were the overspill. 
Mainly smoking, they stood in small knots, chatting together, and across in a corner, a TV crew was filming an interview with someone who James presumed to be a conference presenter. Then he walked along the expanse of the curving croisette. James had even noticed this from the air on his flight into Nice. The bay was a great shape for a sunny view towards the Mediterranean, and mainly low-rise hotels had a grandeur and sense of belonging. The road was wide with twin carriageways and a central median of palm trees, so the whole effect was exactly what one would want from the south of France. James continued, checking the terrain, which was flat, although at intervals with ramps from the promenade down to the beach, some ten metres lower. Despite being November, there were bathers on the beach and several bikini-clad women soaking the last rays of the year's summer-like sunshine. As James walked, he noticed the various transport around him. In addition to the walkers, there were motor scooters, inline skaters and cyclists. The road was often separated from the promenade by between 2 and 20 metres, so there was a high probability that whoever was to meet him would be on foot or aided by bike or similar. A couple of times, James simply stopped and sat down on blue chairs which had been placed along the edge of the pavement. It gave him a chance to look around and really to see if there was anything unusual about the people around him. But his fellow walkers were of many types, with no obvious pattern. There were no paramilitary types or anyone looking furtive or surprised by his sudden movements. He concluded that he was not being followed and that the group would first appear the next day. At the end of the main route, he turned across the entirety of the promenade and started the walk back. He eyed the large hotels and their opulent entrances, the mainly black-clothed inhabitants of the hotels, the well-coutured women with sleek hair, tans, immaculate lip gloss and inevitable sunglasses, the clusters of sleek Mercedes and the street park Bentley, Maserati and a row of three Ferraris. This was no ordinary town and there was clear wealth around. He selected a cafe ahead. It had a slight stairway leading into it and a row of concrete garden pots along the roadside. The height gave it a slight advantage and he was able to select a small corner table which gave him a great vantage of the road. His interest was twofold, to observe the type of traffic at this time of day and to see whether there was now any overt sign that he was being observed. Jake knew that this was irrational, but alone in an unknown place and with a situation tomorrow which could be dangerous, he felt the need to cross-examine the situation from every possible angle. Café au lait, he requested to the waiter, who appeared surprisingly quickly and was very attentive. James paused now with the coffee to contemplate the next 24 hours. Then, from his café position, James saw a large, tanned and thick-set man on rollerblades moving towards him. Surely not, he thought, but yes, as the man approached James, he held out an envelope and thrust it to James. James looked around. The man was already 30 metres away and still moving fast. James opened the envelope. Inside were two items. First, a picture of Leah in a wetsuit and tied up. She looked petrified. Then a sheet of A4 paper typed with the message, Go down the slip to Café Londine. James looked around and realised it was one of the cafes along the beach. He had not been paying attention to their names, but assumed that the one in question would be close to his current location. He looked at the next one, which was named after a hotel, as was the next one then one small private one, and then the one he'd been directed to. From the top of the slope, he could see five or six people sitting at a table and chatting, laughing, in fact. He moved down the slope, and as they saw him, their demeanour became very serious very fast. One of them stood. Mr Goodwin, he started. 
Welcome to our déjeuner. Would you care some wine? He offered. James declined. Where is Leah? He began. She has, she has nothing to do with anything. I'm afraid she does, continued the same voice. You implicated her by your very friendship. Now we want to do a simple trade. You have something of ours and we have something of yours. At the moment, I trust that both items are in very good condition. What do you need? Asked James. Simple. We need the code sequences for the canisters. I know your government intends to disarm them. We will want to prime them. And if I get them for you, asked James, we will return Lear and you can walk away. You won't be able to stop us in any case. Our interest is just in the codes and their consequences. You and Lear are just a cost of doing business. So how do you, I get the codes, asked James. We thought you'd know. We both know you are well connected. You'll either have to ask for them or steal them. And don't think about giving us the wrong information. We'll test them before we return Leah. You have until Friday. I assume you will do this by phone, not by travelling. Yes, said James, that would be my method. James thought to himself, he knew the codes would be a two-signature process, so the chances to get the information other than formally would be very unlikely to succeed. OK, said James, give me three days, I will get the information. No, said the smiling voice, you have two days. No, one day, 23 hours and 50 minutes. And we will end this when the clock runs out. That's at midday French time on Friday. James nodded. He would get the codes. He left the cafe. He wanted to check that he wasn't being followed. Then he called Chuck Manners once again. James, said Chuck, this is becoming a habit. Hi, Chuck. Thank you for picking up. I met with Leah's captors. They have asked me for the codes. They don't know that I had them, nor that I gave them to you, but now they want them in exchange for Leah. There was a pause. OK, said Chuck. I have the codes. I could send them to you. You get Leah, but the captors would have access to the weapons. It also assumes they don't try to double-cross. I think we need a better play than me sending the codes to you and you handing them over. I need to talk to Robert Alton again. James considered. OK, but I need you to promise that you'll send the codes to me by 11.50 French time Friday. It's my last chance to get Leah back. Here's what I'll do. It's Wednesday. I can get across to Cannes by tomorrow around midday if I leave quickly. We can meet up and by then I'll have a plan for what to do on Friday.